Hello and welcome to the latest My Best Teacher podcast with me, Dan Worth. Today, we're joined by novelist, poet, author and teacher, Kate Clanchy, best known for her Orwell Prize winning book, Some Kids I Taught and What They Taught Me, as well as many other works of fiction and non-fiction, including her latest book, How to Grow Your Own Poem. She chats to us about her time in school, including why her favourite teacher was not who you may expect, a memorable and very long French exchange programme that left an impression in more ways than one, why she sometimes argued with her teachers and realises now how annoying that must have sometimes been, and admits she was not always the most dedicated cross-country runner. All that and lots more on the latest My Best Teacher podcast from Tez. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the My Best Teacher podcast. Great to chat with you. Thank you for, for being willing to be interviewed for it. Um, and why don't we kick things off by obviously asking, you know, where did you go to school and who were the teachers or was it just one teacher you remember particularly from, from that time? Well, I went to the end of primary and secondary school um, at a very large grant-aided private school in Edinburgh called George Watson's College. Um, and at the time, it was the largest school in Scotland. I think it was very, it was, you know, 2,000 pupils, 2,400 pupils, which is a lot. Um, and I mean, I don't have very fond memories. It, it, I, some people go into teaching because they want to recreate the experience they had. And some people want to kind of go into teaching because they want to make something better. Mm. And I went in because I wanted to make something different and better. I did have good teachers, though, there. I had good English teachers and um, a great classics teacher that I um, liked very much. The teacher that I was thinking that I remember the most fondly, though, taught me biology. And um, I'm not actually very good at biology or science. Mm. Um, But she was, and she wasn't a kind of gushy or deeply affectionate person or anything like that. I'm sure she was, but she wasn't a a student. She wasn't over-friendly. She was called Mrs. Smith. And she had um, her own lab in which she kept quails. She um, had uh, other other labs had kind of dead things in them, but Mrs. Smith had quails where you could see the eggs and then you could see the baby quails and you could mm. see the creatures running around. Um, and she did a lot of experiments. So we did, you know, chopping up the rat, which I can still remember. The rat's little jewel-like innards and how sweet they, you know, the, the little, <laughs> rat's little meek little face. And we did popping out the lens of a bull's eye. And um, she explained things just very, very, very clearly. She taught me to be secure because I mean I think most of my education was overshadowed by my dyspraxia and my dyscalculia and my dyslexia, all of which was undiagnosed. People just thought I was a clever person who was holding out on them or mm. or not trying very hard. But really, there were quite a number of things I couldn't do at all, and that I was always trying to to mask and to cover up. And sometimes I was very good at things and didn't understand why. And sometimes I made a complete mess of things and also didn't understand why. I remember a um, person next to me in classics saying, you just look at the Latin and then invent it, don't you? And I did. But I, I, mean, I couldn't say why I was getting the Latin right, but I was. I, I couldn't do the systems, but I mm. could think of things. So it was very, felt confused a lot of the time, felt not very sure of myself a lot of the time. But in biology, it did appear that there was things that I could learn and if I attended to what Mrs. Smith said and followed what she was telling me, I could learn. I felt very secure in the learning process. Mm. She taught me how to structure a class where I wasn't a star and I wasn't the bottom either. I was a member of the class and I felt very secure being that member of the class. Um, and she was very fair. You always knew she was going to be consistent. Mm. When I 
look, you know, when I became a teacher and taught myself to, you know, because you teach yourself and you learn from others, she was the kind of model that I think I learned the most from because, y- you know, it's quite easy to love one student and to love your subject and to give to one student. It's harder to create a room where everyone can learn. Mm. And this room was somewhere where everyone can learn. And someone who wasn't deeply gifted at science could be could get an enduring interest. You know, I still think of the things she taught, taught me. I can still see what where the bullseye is. I still understand what's going on in the COVID news much better because of Smith. Mm. And I higher biology. You know, in Scotland you can do it higher, which is not it's not it, it's it's not between it's it's a better qualification than A level. It allows someone like me who would otherwise would have just gone to languages and English to actually acquire some scientific knowledge which has been really useful to me yeah that, that's a lovely um choice because i think you know given you've gone on to to be a you know a poet and a, and a novelist and, and you know win the orwell prize you wouldn't have assumed your answer would be the biology teacher but it goes to show that it's not you said it's not about necessarily providing all you know they, they fill me with a great love of a subject and a passion it's about providing that safe environment that's consistent that's secure and yes your the student might not excel at that subject but actually that's what can re- remain with them throughout life. Yeah, because you're going to make more of that student than you are of the other. I mean, I remember noticing that when um, I, I went into, started teaching myself, mm. you know, you don't meet many of the starry ones, but you you do meet a lot of the kind of the, the medium students. Yeah. And, and that teacher, did you ever sort of stay in touch with them? Did they, you know, do you ever, did you speak to them afterwards? Or, did, you know, when they, you've gone on to have success, were they aware of that? Um, no, I mean, again, it wasn't that kind of relationship. Mm. And I think that's one of the things, that, again, that I liked about it, because I had teachers that liked me too much as well, and that's oppressive. Mm. If, te- if teachers invest in you and want you to be like them, then that's not great. I mean, mm. uh, I mean, to some extent, of course, it's nice to be warm and to see yourself and people and to have a close, you know, to, to be to, well, to be warm, to be friendly is good, but to invest in your students and want them to imitate you and be your disciples is very dodgy. Mm. Uh, and I think that highly appropriate distance was something I also learned from. Yeah. Again, another another nice sort of way of looking at it. Like I said, that, that idea that there might be teachers out there now working with pupils who they will never know, but they actually they will remember them as, like you say, in that way of they they liked them because they were distant. Well, not distant, but because they just had that kind of teacher pupil relationship. Oh, they taught you. And was secure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a very sort of important point. Yeah. I yeah. remember one of the students coming back um, to when I was teaching in Essex and she's working in a bank and just saying, I really do miss those lessons, miss, because there are no poems in the bank. And that again, that wasn't somebody, you know, I, I'd had a special relationship with or was especially brilliant or whatever, but she'd enjoyed my lessons and received something from them. And, mm. you know, th- 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 those kinds of things I'm proud of. Yeah. It's interesting because now you see a lot of poetry in banking adverts, don't you? Like Nat West and so forth. They always have the, was it Nat West or Nationwide? I think they always have these poets Poetry and banking, who, who would have known? Yeah. Do, do you see it is sort of coming back again a bit in fashion? Is that something or, you know? Oh, poetry, yeah. Mm. Poetry's, poetry's had a huge lockdown. Um, and before that, it was um, really getting much more dominant in teenagers' lives. Indeed, this is the last three, four years, teenagers will show me poems on their phones that they're collected or that they've sent to other people. And, and I don't mean, you know, kind of specially gifted or whatever. It is become an acceptable thing that lots and lots of people interchange. There's loads of poems on Instagram, poems on TikTok, poems all over Twitter. It's, um, yeah, 
it's, it's, it's really become a dominant thing in teenage, teenagers' lives. And, and when you look back at your time at school more widely then, I mean, you said there were some elements you said maybe weren't so good, but were there any sort of elements of school life that you remember also fondly, I don't know, maybe a, a good school trip you went on or a sort of memorable lesson in another subject that's always sort of struck you as, or something you sort of took forth, that was a really good idea? Oh, my school was very, very good at taking you out to the Scottish mountains. That was its great strength. And um, they did special projects in the year nine, third year as it was known. And everyone went away for a couple of weeks and stayed in really rough hostels and kings and run, running up mountains. That was one thing it really, and it taught you how to be safe on a mountain and how to choose boots and how to be confident. And yeah, I think that's one thing it did very well. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds lovely. I mean, I that as well. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a lovely thing. Obviously, like, I guess if that's where your school is based, that's a wonderful thing to have on your doorstep. But was that something that happened fairly regularly then? Absolutely. I mean, um, almost every every second weekend you could go on some trip or another. I mean, the Pendleton Hills in Edinburgh are really next to Edinburgh and they're very good walking. Um, but these were trips to kind of a little bit further away, you know, to Sky and up into the Highlands. Um, and yeah, the, those, I, I don't know whether health and safety would intervene now, but, but those the, those were very good times and, and a very good, a very, those, those were very good learning experiences. I was going to ask, do you think that that opportunity to get out of the classroom and out of school almost, it, does that can happen enough these days, do you, do, would you say? Uh, it's almost impossible now. It's so hard. Um, I did, you know, with poetry in, in school to, to try to get people to, to come out and to, you know, to go to poetry event, to go to a reading. It's, it's just incredibly hard work. It's incredibly hard work for the teacher. They have to take so much time to go through the register and go through the, all the different letter writing and money gathering and security procedures it's almost you know it's impossible almost mm. and that, that that's a great loss it's really it's very difficult to do I went in a very good French exchange at school actually as well I was sent off for three weeks to a lycée in the middle of Paris and we had to go to French school we had to speak French um I mean that's a tremendous learning experience and again I think there were amazingly dedicated language teachers still try to make language exchange happen but it's very very hard mm. Yeah, three weeks, that sounds very intensive. That's a lot of time, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but we just thought it was normal. That's what we did. We did three weeks in Paris and the, the exchange students came back and did three weeks in Scotland. Goodness, what they thought. Um, I, I remember them. I remember how kind of sophisticated and beautiful some of the, the French students were, <laughs> how gauche we were. But anyway, they, you know, these things were done. I was going to say that the culture shock of, I don't know, which was stronger, you going to Paris for three weeks or them coming to, to Scotland for three weeks? Um, I don't know. <laughs> so, at least, I mean, Ed, central Edinburgh and central Paris are comparably beautiful. Mm. Um, but I think that those students were much more sort of sophisticated and relaxed and better dressed than we were. I remember there was a girl called Natalie who had a small rose tattoo just just below her left buttock and the queue of boys that wanted to take her to our school dance. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. She said, ooh la la, just like they did in the French book. Oh, really? She, was she actually doing that all, like authentically or playing up to the cliche? She seemed to be doing it just, you know, authentically. That seemed to be what uttered, she uttered. Ooh, la, la. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can imagine to, to, to young boys, that must have been very intoxicating. Extraordinary, yeah. <laughs> but again, it sounds like a, a wonderful experience to go on. I mean, how was that facilitated then? Was that, was that through like French studies at your school? Well, that, yeah, well, just French as it was known. Yeah, mm. I, I, again, I did higher French, 
um, which is between an A-level and a GCSE. And it is a big difference, actually. I think if you do GCSE French, you can't speak it competently. And if you do higher French, then you can speak it competently for the rest of your life. Mm. You know, I, I did get quite, I, I did five hires. They were very sound. I did sound slightly boring, very clear. Um, and I do also look back on those exams and think that is a better arrangement than doing 10 GCSEs and three A-levels. Mm. Um, it, it gave me, um, I did languages, I did history, I did science, and I did them to a level where I still know about them you know, and I can still build on them. And I think I, I do feel sorry for every year. I hate GCSE. I would abolish, if I was queen for a day, I would abolish all GCSEs. Um, but I hate the failing at GCSE and then I hate the narrowing down that goes on with students after that. Mm. And because I've been through a slightly wider system, I really know in my heart that it's not necessary. Yes, yeah. Well, and obviously this year's sort of debacle was particularly terrible, wasn't it, with the way it was all managed? Absolutely dreadful. But it's dreadful in Scotland, actually, as well. Mm. Yes, went through um, it first. And, um, the, the narrowness in Scotland and the sort of repetitive. The way Scottish education is very conservative, um, it's very conservative in its choice of teacher, teachers and the way it's taught, and that means that it's very conservative in the way it keeps um, social groups apart, and that showed up. And actually, the Scottish results debacle was worse even than the English one, I think, in a granular level. Hmm. One thing that's interesting is when you said about your, your best teacher was your biology teacher, I mean, does that mean then that English at school didn't actually sort of appeal or impact you in the way that it subsequently has in your later life or was do you always have a love for it but more for yourself than through school no i did, I did have um i did love english and i was good at english and I, I, you know i went off to read english at university um and i had um you know very enthusiastic english teachers it was different again i did higher english and when i said a private education people don't you know, I, I sat in a class of 30 doing higher English. So that would be AS level, you know, in year in year 12. And we were still, we were sitting in wooden desks on iron frames in a class of 30 in alphabetical order um, <laughs> doing that in class. So it wasn't, I'm writing essays about Macbeth. And so it, it wasn't quite the sort of discursive lounging about subject that um, people imagine, you know, that in the history boards, for example. It's mm. not that, it wasn't that. Um, I did like English, of course. I loved English. I never really, I suppose, again, I, my dyslexia, my bad spelling, my handwriting, my difficulty in learning things in a consistent way, I never quite understood what I was doing right in English, in a way. Mm. Same way that I could understand I was learning something in biology. Yeah. And also there was no place for creative writing. And mm. I think I spent a lot of time pretending I didn't mind. Um, it took me until I was about 27 to realise that actually I really, really mind. I really mind what I want to do with some creative writing. Yeah. I I, rem, I have, remember thinking the same thing at um, AS, AS and A level with I did English was the, why there wasn't any creative writing component. And my English teacher, Mrs. Neal, she was similarly sort of always used to agree and say, yes, I would love to be teaching you creative writing. She would bring in poems occasionally that she'd written as a sort of, you know, for five minutes, we would look at some poetry that she'd written and or, you know, and, or she'd share something you know, by a poet. And then we'd move on to looking at, um, Oh, I can't remember what it was now, measure for measure or something like that. Which is also fine, but, you know, of course people want to write. Mm. And, and again, there, there, is, there was an element of writing in higher English, um, but it wasn't taught. You kind of did it when you went in. 
I do, you know, I do. I, I think I regret that for myself, and I regret that for so many kids that you can't do more creative writing in English. Yeah. Well, in your book, um, some kids I taught and what they taught me, which, you know, won the Orwell Prize, which is a fantastic achievement and sort of, you know, I guess there's many issues on that, like you know, the politics of education is covered in that. But you talk a lot as well about, um, you know, getting children to engage with poetry and what it can do for them. There's some poets in the poet, poems in the book written by your pupils, which are absolutely phenomenal. And it just shows that poetry can come from anyone and from anything. And you know, you've got to give that this creative opportunity to people sometimes. Yeah, of course, young people can write. Um, and it's also that, you know, they, they learn through writing um, and they, the reading and writing are, are one process. And I just think it's a shame that English has been narrowed down to criticism, literary criticism. I mean, literary criticism is interesting. I like doing literary criticism, but it's only one branch of English. There are so many others. Mm. And writing is so much more natural and organic and um, right for kids to do. And we should, we, we should be doing more for it. It's almost, it's almost, it's almost forbidden, you know. Not quite illegal, but there is no reward for writing any kind of poem on the English exam system. So overall, then, if you look back at your school days, I mean, were you a good student? Did you sort of play by the rules most of the time? Or did you ever sort of end up in any sort of wayward detention scenarios? Or were you mostly sort of happy to to sort of do as you were told, shall we say? Um, I was over-emotional, weepy, bullyable. Mm. Uh, occasionally enormously stubborn not, not that easy no <laughs> so you sort of you sort of pushed against the rules a bit but I did well I, I mean occasionally I told people they were wrong um, I told my French teacher we shouldn't throw chalk I got into a huge row about that and I said that was wrong mm. um, I got into a huge row in primary seven because I told my teacher, he said, shouldn't say to Jew somebody down. He said that was a wrong thing to say. Mm. I remember everyone in the class agreeing with the teacher, including the, the Jewish student in the class, and saying that was fine. Mm. And me saying it was not fine, it was not fine, it was not fine. And then just, you know, but not arguing very well, just kind of crying. I just felt it was wrong. Yeah. And I mean, say on the chalk incident as well. I mean, it sounds like you were you obviously history. Yeah, that was also wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you know you obviously yeah. the, the teaching styles that the way things have changed now. You obviously were in the right, but do you do you sort of look at that behaviour and from your own perspective, teacher, and think, oh yeah, that would have been annoying though for the teacher, even if I was right. Yeah, at the very time. annoying. Yeah, very annoying for the suddenly the, for the weird person back of the class suddenly telling you you were wrong. I told my history teacher his methodology was rubbish as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I would just get these notions. I still do. I still get a very stubborn ideas about things and then suddenly stick to my guns about something um and yeah and at school I wasn't great about it so I, I wasn't kind of naughty as in um well you know I did occasionally run away from cross-country running but I you know I didn't kind of you know not sort of fags behind the bike shed kind of naughty but I, oh. I was stubborn and strange about and slightly unpredictable about mm. things I think you should explain when you say you ran away from the cross-country running. I mean, well, I mean that's when you go. You start off the cross-country running, and then you go down the shop with your friends, and you know, have a little stroll, and then you come back, and then you run in at the end. I mean, I think people expect you to do that. That's right. That's <laughs> <laughs> not the worst sin that was ever committed. No, true, true. I mean, especially if you don't get caught. I suppose it's the perfect crime, right? You just Absolutely. Yeah, come back right. looking like you're out of breath, but. Also, I was one of those people, by that point, the PE teachers had despaired of me, so they think they just wanted me to go away quietly for an hour, so I did. Yeah. I was obliging, really. And, I mean, again, you, you didn't start by saying anything, over, you, you were sort of honest about that sometimes some of your sense of your memory of school wasn't 
entirely you know, all positive. But have you ever gone back since you know since you've achieved your success? Do they sort of proudly welcome you back as a former pupil, or as that sort of part of your life? Sort of, do you not sort of engage with it? I'm not. I'm not a big goer backer. Um, I don't. Um, I haven't. I have. I have refused invitations, which I think is probably rude. I don't mm. want to hurt anybody's feelings. There's, I mean, there, I have old school friends that I'm still closely in touch with. My my friends, but. I have a bit of a horror of going back to institutions um, and there, I know of plenty of institutions, you know, places that I work that, that can make good use of me. So that's where I go. Really, really nice to talk about that and sort of balance that sense of, you know, that you can, you can clearly have a mem- you know, have a good or good teachers at school that they really stay with you in life, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your, your memory of school is itself is always wonderfully positive. No, I, mean, I, I had, you know, of course I had good friends. Mm. Um, I had good teachers. I benefited a lot from different elements of the Scottish education system. There's loads and loads of good individuals. I don't want to say anything root negative about different individuals and no one should listen to this and think, oh, she hated us all or anything like that. But I do think as an institution, you know, it was very narrow, the school I went to. It was an illustration to me of what a bad thing it is to have a monoculture because everybody there was almost everyone was white and they came from very, very similar social backgrounds. And as a result, there was bullying and tension and people being picked on for very small differences. I mean, my brother was extensively picked on simply for not being athletic. You know, Mm. there was nothing else wrong with him. I got picked on a lot for having an English accent, supposedly, for being tall, for Mm. being intellectual, for bursting into tears. You know, it's not very things that were very small differences that in a multicultural school wouldn't even count as differences got picked on. And it, that made people, it was narrow, it was anxious, harsh. And those narrow, anxious, harsh things were enforced by the wider culture of the school and, you know, by, by the teachers, effectively, by things. So they were, they were only a few years out of belting people regularly for small sins. Mm. And the belting thing is still there in the air. Um, and the narrowness and the competitiveness and the utter dominance of rugby None of those things made for a an inclusive, creative atmosphere. Yeah, that's what. Well, in your, your book, you. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there, but yeah, yeah, in your book, you you talk so much. You know, you you describe such a far more positive environment, and you know, the hope is that schooling has progressed so much in in, in all settings to you know, maybe not exactly as you describe the work you've done, but that much more inclusive, much more sort of pastoral and, and well being and, and sort of positive focus shall we say than that sort of old school uh, or no pun intended but that old-fashioned type of schooling um which yeah when you describe it the way you were there it does sound like well it was it was a much harder place for, for, for many people years oh, ago yeah. i mean it, well, it just shut down more and more you know more avenues so the, this this school that my student my kids go to there's the school i taught in oxford spires is a very multicultural school and it's got all kinds of flaws but and it doesn't have remotely enough money but it does have a very warm, tolerant atmosphere. And that's what it wants to do. It wants to include mm. um, that. That I, I would write I, I, for everything, you know, that my kids didn't have like three week French exchanges and that kind of thing. 
Um, but for everything they haven't had, they still they have been to school and known all sorts of different people and accepted them as equals, and that's a really important positive thing that they've had. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's great. Well, well, thank you so much for sharing your your memories of school and talking, you know, more widely about some of the other things we've touched as well. Really interesting stuff. And um, do you have a? Is your most recent book was was some kids I taught and what they taught me, or was this? Uh, I, mean, I have a new book. Um, I've, I've published three books in three years, which is unlike me. But they actually I was working in them all beforehand. So this is um, Grow Your Own Poem. Fantastic. Uh, it is it was a self help book, but it's also any teacher will read it and recognise that it's absolutely full of lesson plans. So it's because, because that's what it is. It's all my best lessons. Great. How to grow your own poem. That's, that's yep. a great title. Um, and anyway, so it's, yeah, there's poems that you can grow other poems from. So you can do it on your own or you can nick the ideas and take them. <laughs> I hope people will. No, that sounds brilliant. Excellent. And that's out now, is it? That's out now. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, that's great. That sounds like a really great book. And um, I say some kids I taught and what they taught me. I've, I've just recently read it. Um, a fascinating book. Really recommend it. Um, and yeah, thank you again for taking part in the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for asking me.